Okay, so this is the book of Job. Um, the uh, title or the theme uh, that we're following is uh, Faithful Living in Times of Crisis. This is lesson number four in this uh, series. And uh, the title of this particular lesson, The Theological Crisis Part One. Imagine, Theological Crisis Part One. And we will be covering chapter four, verse one, all the way to chapter 14, verse 22. As I've told you, don't have time to read all of this here. I'm hoping that you read ahead at home during the week. We will be selecting you know, key verses along the way. So we've been introduced to Job, a wealthy and righteous man who suffers a series of losses that create an enormous physical and emotional crisis in his life. Uh, despite losing his wealth, his children, his wife, and lastly, his health, he continues to have faith in God and he does not sin despite the desperate situation that he is in. And when we say sin, I mean sin by cursing or blaming God or abandoning his faith. Now, I mentioned last time that one feature of Job's belief system was that he understood God's system of justice worked in real time. In other words, good people were blessed right away by God and so prosperity and health they were a sign of righteousness. And of course, sinners were judged and punished right away by God. So adversity and poverty were actually a sign of God's displeasure with your life or your actions. In other words, the good were blessed and the sinners were punished right here and right now. And so even though Job performed well through the physical crisis that he suffered, he began to break down as he faced the theological crisis that came in the form of three friends and a fourth man who challenged the seeming conflict present in his situation. In other words, if you're as innocent and righteous as you claim, they say, why is God punishing you so severely? That was the big question. So Job's dilemma here was uh, that he believed both statements to be true. That's where the dilemma comes in. Statement number one, he was innocent and righteous. He knew that about himself. He was innocent and righteous and he believed that. And then statement number two, God punishes guilty sinners. Well, he knew that was to be true as well. So he knows that these two things are true, but they're in conflict with one another in his personal life. Why then is he being punished? This theological crisis is played out in a series of three cycle of speeches between Job and his three friends. So the friend makes a speech, Job replies. Second friend makes a speech, Job replies. Third friend makes a speech, Job replies. End of one cycle. There are three cycles like this in the book of Job. Two speeches also by a younger man at the end called Elihu, who waits until Job and his friends have finished speaking before making his comments and to which Job makes no response. So Job makes a response to you know, his three friends every time they speak, but he doesn't make a response to the fourth man and we'll see that when we, when we get there. So these dialogues and speeches explain the, pre, uh, the prevailing theological thinking at that time as well as Job's attempts at resolving the apparent contradiction that he was wrestling with 
in the theological crisis that he was living through. It's one thing to have a theological crisis on paper, you know, like a homework assignment. It's quite a different thing when you're actually living the crisis, okay, as he was. So we start with the cycle, you know, the first cycle of speeches. Those are contained in chapter four, all the way to verse, uh, chapter 14. Now some scholars suggest that the theme of this first cycle of speeches is the nature of God, okay? So we have Eliphaz, the three friends. I've already introduced them, but we'll just review a little bit. There's Eliphaz. Uh, he emphasizes God's holiness and goodness in his speeches. Bildad, he emphasizes God's righteousness. And Zophar, the third one, focuses on God's wisdom. So we begin with Eliphaz and his speech. So we know that Eliphaz is, is old and devout and as I mentioned before, is more gracious and kind than Job's other two friends in his speaking and in his attitude. You, you see a, you know, a streak of kindness in there. He bases his arguments for the doctrine of retribution. That's what it's called. You know, uh, the good are blessed and the bad are punished right away. The doctrine of retribution. His proof is that this is how things have worked based on personal experience. He's saying, hey, this is true. I've seen it happen, okay? His approach with Job is to begin in a kindly manner and then rebuke him and then plead with him not to despise the chastening of the Lord. And then he finishes by promising Job future blessings. So that's a kind of outline. You know, that's the track that he follows in his speech. So let's uh, summarize uh, Eliphaz's speech here. First of all, he begins by expressing surprise that one who had comforted others, Job, uh, who is going through similar experiences should break down so quickly. In other words, he begins by telling Job, you ought to be practicing what you've been preaching to others. You've encouraged others and told them, you know, when God's punishing you, bear it, you know, and so on. Now that you're going through it, why aren't you doing that? So we read in chapter four, verses one to five, it says, then Eliphaz the Temanite answered, if one ventures a word with you, will you become impatient? But who can refrain from speaking? Behold, you have admonished many and you have strengthened weak hands. Your words have helped the tottering to stand and you have strengthened feeble knees. But now it has come to you and you are impatient. It touches you and you are dismayed. And so you see him you know, kind of admonishing him. Now the shoe's on the other foot. Look how you're reacting, he says to Job. He also reminds Job concerning the doctrine of retribution, that theological principle that they both believe in. They both believe in this idea. And of course, this idea that Eliphaz knows from experience. So we keep going this time, verse seven. He says, remember now, whoever perished being innocent? Or where were the upright destroyed? According to what I have seen, those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble harvest it. By the breath of God, they perish. And by the blast of his anger, they come to an end. You know, he's reminding him, don't you know by experience, you know, the, the, the bad people are always punished. And we know this from experience, he says. And then, uh, we make a kind of a editorial comment here about Eliphaz. Eliphaz has been called a mystic uh, in, um, in certain uh, commentaries. 
And he demonstrates why he is called a mystic in chapter four, verse 12, all the way to chapter five, verse seven, where he describes one of his visions. We'll only read a little section of that, but it'll give you an idea. It says, now a word was brought to me stealthily and my ear received a whisper of it. And amid disquieting thoughts from the visions of the night, when deep sleep falls on men, dread came upon me and trembling and made all my bones shake. Then a spirit passed by my face. The hair of my flesh bristled up. It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence. Then I heard a voice. And so he talks about this vision that he has. Okay? And uh, this vision is uh, broken down into three blocks. Again, I'm not going to read the passage, but it contains three exhortations or encouragements for Job. The first, he says to Job, realize and accept that no one is perfect, not even you. So accept your sinfulness. So chapter 4, 17, all the way to chapter 5, verse 7. Second thing he says, Job should commit his cause to God because innocent or guilty, he should go to God for his problems. Chapter 5, 8 to 16. And then in chapters 5, 17 to 27, Job is reminded of the doctrine of Musar, which stated that God disciplines his children. And of course, this concept is stated by the writer in Hebrews, you know, where the writer says in Hebrews 12, verse 6, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves. It's a doctrine of Musar. And that's a very old idea. And Eliphaz reminds Job that this idea existed you know, even at that time. So the point Eliphaz is making here is that Job should be happy, not sad or angry, since a man is chastened by God, or rather a man who is chastened by God is blessed. So what Eliphaz is trying to do is, he's trying to get him to see what has happened in a positive light. So if you understood Job, that you know, God punishes sinners, okay, and if you're a righteous man and you're trying to do good, well, maybe God is chastening you so you can be better. How about just accepting that and go with it and be happy with that? <laughs> now, here's the thing. Eliphaz's speech is actually true. The individual things he says are true. And he is putting Job's suffering in a positive light. You know, God is chastening him to make him a better man. However, it is not accurate. That's the problem. It's true, but it's not accurate in the context of what we, the readers, know. The thing is, God, the devil, and us, the readers, we know what's happening. We know the true reason why Job is suffering and Eliphaz doesn't and neither does Job. So the things that he says to Job are true. You know, God does chasten you know, men to, to, to make them better, if you wish, to purify them. And yes, sinners are punished. And yes, you know, the, the, the good are blessed. And all. Those are all true things, but they're not necessarily the explanation for what is happening to Job. So Eliphaz, you know, he doesn't know that Satan uh, has destroyed this innocent man's life in order to prove that without his blessings, Job would, would abandon God. He doesn't know that. He, 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 can't, he can't know that. So that's the end of Eliphaz's speech. So then Job replies to Eliphaz and his reply is not a philosophical or theological rebuttal to Eliphaz's arguments and exhortations. His reply is emotional. It, it's the cry of one who is suffering great loss and tragedy. In a word, 
His first reply is deeply human and personal. And in his reply, he says three things. First, his intolerable wretchedness. In chapter six, verses one to four, a small section, he says, then Job answered, oh, that my grief were actually weighed and laid in the balances together with my calamity. For then it would be heavier than the sand of the seas. Therefore, my words have been rash. For the arrows of the Almighty are within me. Their poison my spirit drinks. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. In other words, he has, he has ample reasons to be miserable and angry. That's the first thing he says. Next, he expresses his great disappointment in his friends. Chapter six, verse 14. He says, for the despairing man, there should be kindness from his friend so that he does not forsake the fear of the Almighty. So his point about them is that by withholding their kindness and warmth as friends, their appearance has only increased his suffering and not comforted him as friends ought to do for one another, especially when in need. In other words, he's saying, listen, isn't it bad enough that I'm suffering this wretched life that you guys have to come along and you know, in other words, you're piling on. <laughs> you're just making it worse by what you're saying. And then the third thing he says is he also reveals his bitterness against God and his prayer for the end of his suffering through death in chapters seven, one verse 21. Again, we won't read that, I just summarize that for you. He doesn't deny God, but he's angry with God. And his prayer is not for deliverance or healing. He's given up on that. He just wants God to put him out of his misery. You know, I've only got one thing left to do and is to die. Please just kill me. Just let's get it over. You know how far down you have to be when your only prayer is that for God to just take your life? And of course, maybe some of you have heard that. Maybe some of you have witnessed that, you know, with a loved one who was suffering terrible pain because of cancer, you know, something like that. People get that far down. Job you know, is, is not expressing in his poetry something that's maybe 3,000 years old. He's not expressing anything new, not unheard of in the human condition. All right, so now we, we move along. We get to Bildad. He's the next, next guy up. Bildad's speech. Now in the past we've noted that Bildad is more rigid and authoritarian than Eliphaz and his speech is less sympathetic or kind. Bildad suggests that it's the sins of Job or possibly those of his children that have brought on his sufferings. But in the end he tells them God will remember Job. So he still has a kind of light at the end of the tunnel so to speak. So Bildad's speech, it has three parts. First, he rebukes Job for his angry accusations against God's justice. So let's read that portion, chapter eight. Then Bildad the Shuhite answered, how long will you say these things and the words of your mouth be a mighty wind? Does God pervert justice? Or does the Almighty pervert what is right? If your sons sinned against him, if you seek God and implore the compassion of the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, surely now he would rouse himself for you and restore your righteous estate. Though your beginning was insignificant, yet your end will increase uh, greatly. 
And so uh, uh, his point is that God doesn't pervert justice. He punishes man for his sins. In other words, God doesn't punish somebody unjustly. So stop accusing God of being unjust. If, if as you claim, he says, you are so right, why isn't God helping you? Note that he's appealing to, again to that doctrine of retribution, okay, to support his argument. They all, they all go, always go back to that same you know, source point to make their arguments against Job. If you were not a sinner, you would not be in trouble. That's his point to Job. Bildad then appeals to ancient wisdom to support his idea. He makes the case that there's nothing new in what he argues. It has always been this way. He simply continues in the teaching of the ancients. And so he is bringing to Job like the traditional position. In our worship and in our religion and in our faith, he says to Job, hasn't it always been that God punishes the guilty? Why are you fighting him? Why are you accusing him of injustice? You're suffering. The only reasonable explanation is because you have sinned in some way. Just accept it. That's his argument. Then he finishes with a, uh, a word of encouragement. Bildad concludes by assuring Job that he will be restored and his enemies uh, will be punished. Uh, in chapter eight, verse 20 to 22, he says, Lo, God will not reject a man of integrity, nor will he support the evildoers. He will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouting. Those who hate you will be clothed with shame and the tent of the wicked will be no longer. From Bildad's perspective, God will help if Job will accept the lessons from the past. So Bildad is true to his understanding of the doctrine of retribution, but since he, like Job, does not know the context and reason for Job's suffering, his arguments and his conclusions may be sincere, but they're incorrect. All right. Job now, you know, this is a cycle. Job now replies to Bildad's uh, speech. <clears throat> now we need to understand that these cycle of speeches are not necessarily debates as we understand debates. We've heard a debate. Some of us have heard a debate last night, you know, somewhat of a debate. These are not debates in that, uh, in that vein, in that idea, if you wish. You know, here one person makes a point or the other responds specifically to that point with a counter argument denying or countering the details made by the first speaker. That's in a traditional debate, what we hope would be a debate. One speaker says something, the other speaker listens, and then the other speaker you know, refutes that argument with his own argument. That's, a, that's what we understand as a debate, okay? But Job answers Bildad's claim that Job is a sinner and is suffering just punishment, but one day will be restored. This, this, this theme is a standard outline used by many prophets in the Old Testament. You know, condemnation and then punishment and then restoration. Uh, uh, all three of the uh, speakers, all three of the friends, they, they say different things, but they use the same pattern. And it's a pattern that we see in a lot of the prophetic writings. Uh, the prophets would, would begin with, uh, you know, uh, Israel has sinned, 
against God and there's a great punishment coming if you don't repent, but in the end, God will rescue you and so on and so forth. So you know, their, their uh, admonitions to Job follows that ancient prophetic, uh, if you wish, uh, thinking or outline, okay? So Job, uh, however, does not deal with Bildad's comments. That was my point about a regular debate. It'd be nice if Job came back and he, you know, he, he went point by point for uh, Bildad, but he doesn't do that. that we call it a, a debate, but it's not really a debate. Um, uh, rather, what he does is he reveals what he thinks about his present suffering. That's what he says to Bildad. So he, um, uh, first of all, expresses his feelings of helplessness in the presence of God's uh, om, uh, omnipotence, uh, omnipotence, if you wish. Uh, and he talks about this in chapter nine, verses one to 21. He doesn't try to respond, but he knows that it's futile, even if he did. He is in the difficult position where he knows too much about God to deny him, but not enough about God to understand what's happening to him. <laughs> you see that dilemma? You know, it's like the martyrs, it's like the apostles. You know, it's like, look, you're going to kill me if I don't deny Jesus? Uh, sorry, I can't deny what I've seen. It's too bad that you're going to kill me. I really don't want to die, but I just can't say I didn't see what I saw. Job is somewhat in this position. Yes, I'm in a bad way and yes, I'm suffering. Yes, I, I don't understand why God is punishing me and my life is miserable, but you know what? No matter how miserable it gets, I cannot deny that God is, is there. I can be mad at him. I can accuse him of all kinds of things. I can, you know, I can do all kinds of things, but the one thing I can't do is deny his existence. I know too much to do that, okay? So both good and bad, another thing he says, both good and bad suffer alike and somehow God is responsible for both. This is what Job uh, answers to uh, Bildad. He says, it is all one, therefore I say, he destroys the guiltless and the wicked. If the scourge kills suddenly, he mocks the despair of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces of its judges. If it is not he, then who is it? And so this idea was also a common one at the time and may have been Job's own appeal to the wisdom of the ancients to explain his own situation. However, he follows this point with his own opinion of what is going on. And here's Job's opinion. Here's what he thinks is going on. He thinks that God is just not being fair to him. <laughs> Does that sound familiar? Boy, how many times have I heard that at funerals, at hospital beds? at houses of mourning. People just say, it's just not fair. Why him and not me? Or why her and not that one over there? Or why our grandpa and not somebody else's? You know, he was a good man, so on and so forth. Again, human nature, the same, always the same, right? Especially when you put it under pressure. So he goes one step further by declaring that if there was an umpire, so interesting. He says, if there was an umpire, the only time 
this one word is used in the, in, in the entire Old Testament. Uh, another word for that, uh, the modern translation is umpire, but another uh, couple of words we could use there is decider or adjudicator, okay? If only there was a decider or an adjudicator between him and God, this uh, would allow him to plead his case without fear. And he expresses this in chapter nine, 32 to 35, he says, for he is not a man as I am, that I may answer him, that we may go to court together. In other words, I can't, you know, I can't argue with God, just me and God, that's not fair. There is no umpire, there is no adjudicator between us who may lay his hand upon us both. So fascinating. Let him remove his rod from me and let not dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak and not fear him, but I am not like that in myself. This passage here, you know, you talk about messianic lineage, messianic types. This is a very primitive and not fully developed type for Christ as the mediator, as the adjudicator between God, the judge and punisher of sinful man and man who is both guilty and helpless before God. A very early mention of this idea that we recognize in the writings of Job. As we have said, and others have said, the image of Christ and the work of Christ is seen from Genesis all the way to the end. And here we capture a glimpse of it here in the book of Job. So uh, Job cannot understand God's present attitude towards him. I don't get it. You're the God of holiness. You're a good God. You, go, you bless people. Why are you doing this to me? It's not fair. I wish we could go to court and somebody could you know, stop you from just zapping me so I could make my case without fear. This is, his, this is how sure he is of himself. Now remember that he's dealing with a theological crisis where what he believes is in direct conflict with what is happening to him. So we read in chapter 10, verse seven, according to your knowledge, I am indeed not guilty, yet there is no deliverance from your hand. Imagine what he's saying to God. You know I'm not guilty. That's what he's saying to God. You know I'm not guilty. You know I'm not a sinner. And yet you're punishing me anyways. Takes an awfully brave guy to say that. And then at the end, he renews his plea for death and he asks only for a brief respite before he goes. It's as if he's in a loop, you know? He sees no reason nor rhyme to his suffering. So after an attempt to explain and defend himself, he returns to the only option he thinks remains and that's death or a better option never having been born in the first place, which he expresses here. He says, why then have you brought me out of the womb? Would that I had died and no eye had seen me. So he falls silence, uh, silent rather, once again, which opens up an opportunity for the third friend, Zophar, to speak. And so Zophar's speech <clears throat> begins in chapter uh, 11, uh, verses one to six, uh, and it's the rebuke. Now we've said that Zophar, right? He is uh, dogmatic, he's intolerant, intolerant, he's arrogant. Let's read just a bit of his speech. Then Zophar the Naamathite answered, shall a multitude of words go unanswered and a talkative man be acquitted? 
Shall your boasts silence men, and shall you scoff and none rebuke? For you have said, my teaching is pure and I am innocent in your eyes. But would that God might speak and open his lips against you and show you the secrets of wisdom, for sound wisdom has two sides. Know then that God forgets a part of your iniquity. In other words, stop your babbling before God and be thankful that you're getting off easy. You're still alive, aren't you? <laughs> be happy you're still breathing. Then he appeals, Zophar, appeals to God's wisdom. He says in verse seven, can you discover the depths of God? Can you discover the limits of the Almighty? They are high as the heavens. What can you do? Deeper than shell, what can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. If he passes by or shuts up or calls an assembly, who can restrain him? For he knows false men and he sees iniquity without investigating. An idiot will become intelligent when the foal of a wild donkey is born a man. <laughs> Man's wisdom, he says, is blindness compared to God's wisdom. This is true, but not applicable in Job's case because Zophar, like Job, is in the dark when it comes to Job's situation. Job is not guilty of violating or denying God's wisdom. He simply does not know what God knows, which in itself is not necessarily a sin. And then he ends with an exhortation to repent like the others. He makes baseless charges you know, that, that Job has sinned or that Job has spoken foolishness to God or that go, Job has doubted and rejected God's wisdom. And so as far as he's concerned, the solution is easy. Job just has to repent. Of course, if the changes uh, uh, were, were there, then sincere repentance uh, would bring forgiveness and restoration. But again, since Zophar's accusations are false, there's no need for Job to repent to these. There's no point for him to repent. Then we have Job's reply to Zophar, chapter 12 to chapter 14. Job's reply begins with a direct repudiation of much of what he and the others have said. But as in all of his speeches, the awful reality of what has happened to him and his inability to change any of it returns Job to a solemn and a sorrowful conclusion. And so Job asserts that his insight is not inferior to that of his friends. Again, remember I told you, it's not a classic debate. One makes a speech, the other makes a speech. They don't necessarily point out the points that the other has made. So we read in chapter 12, verses one to three, Job responds, truly then you are the people and with you wisdom will die. That's sarcasm, by the way, if we didn't see it. <laughs> you, know, you, you have the end, of, the end of wisdom ended with you. There's no wisdom after you so far. <laughs> and with you, wisdom will die. But I have intelligence as well as you. I'm not inferior to you, he says. Notice that Job doesn't deal with the points necessarily, but with the attitude. Zophar is arrogant, he's sarcastic. And Job answers him in like, you know. You're not so smart, other people have intelligence. I know a thing or two myself, he says. Their defense, he says, Job says, their defense of God is unnecessary. 
In other words, he's saying to the other guys, stop defending God. He doesn't need you guys to defend him. In other words, God can care for himself. He doesn't need you to defend him. I believe Job is pointing to their defense of God as a subtle form of self-righteousness and hypocrisy, putting themselves, you know, I'll be the defender of God. I'll be the defender of what's right. You know what I'm saying? And he's saying, who are you to defend what's right? You know, today we say, you know, who made you king? Who made you the boss? Here he's saying, who is making you God's defender? And then Job mounts a new challenge against God in chapter 13, 13 to 28. So far, his main complaint has been that God is not being fair with him. You know, he's punishing an innocent man. But in this passage, he charges that God is bullying him. We read a bit of that, chapter 13. It says, why do you hide your face and consider me your enemy? Talking to God now. Will you cause a driven leaf to tremble? Or will you pursue the dry chaff? You know, David says it in the Psalm. You know, I'm a worm, he says. I'm a worm. I'm a dead dog. You know, who am I? Job is saying, who am I that you would pursue me this way? That you'd pay so much attention to me? Why are you picking on me? In other words, what's happening to him is overkill, is what he's saying. This possibility leads him back to making another comment about not only his life, but life in general. And that is the frailty and brevity of human life in general. In chapter 14, again, a small sample. He says, man who is born of woman is short lived and full of turmoil. Like a flower, he comes forth and withers. He also flees like a shadow and does not remain. His conclusion point is that there's really no hope. God is bullying me. There's nothing I can say. There's nothing left for me to do but die and God won't even let me die. At this point in time in the Old Testament, the idea of life after death was not well developed. At best, it was believed people lived on somehow through their children. This is why having children, aside from economic reasons, was so important and not having children was considered shameful and in a way a, a kind of a curse from God. And we see that throughout the Old Testament, different characters, women in the Old Testament who couldn't have children. It wasn't just disappointing, but it was a curse. They, they begged God for children. It wasn't just, a, you know, uh, bi it wasn't just biological, it was spiritual. In chapter 14 verses 18 to 22, he says, but the falling mountain crumbles away and the rock moves from its place. Water wears away stones, its torrents wash away the dust of the earth. So you destroy man's hope. You forever overpower him and he departs. You change his appearance and send him away. His sons achieve honor, but he does not know it. Or they become in insignificant, but he does not perceive it. But his body pains him and he mourns only for himself. And what he's saying at the end there is dying is a lonely business. Dying is a lonely business. Yeah, you can have everybody around you, but you're the only one dying. They get to go home after. So Job sees no end to his physical and emotional suffering and his death as the next event which will end his life and extinguish his being. This thought also makes the unfairness of what he is experiencing so hard to bear. You know, the point he's thinking, 
I excel at doing what is right and being good, and I am not only punished, but I also die without hope. Wow. He's in a bad, bad place. Although incorrect theologically, what he's saying, having this thought certainly justifies his question and cry, which is, why was I born? If this is the end that I'm meeting, why was I born? Okay, we're going to stop right here. And I'm going to give you an assignment, Job 15 to Job 21. Read those, read them over a couple of times. And one last thing I, I, I want to mention here. Our approach or my approach to teaching this book will be to review the book itself first. You know, how it's divided, who are the characters, what does the story tell and how does it tell it. And we'll keep the lessons, you know, the so what part, so what, what lessons can we draw from Job? All of those are going to be in the last lesson. So we're going to do the book first and then at the end, the last lesson, lesson number nine, God willing, we'll draw all the lessons that we can or that I've selected from the book of Job as a way to finish off this study. Okay, that's it for uh, this time. Thank you very much for your attention.